Hello, welcome to the Vim Podcast. I'm Zach in Los Angeles. I'm joined by Dr. Justin Clarity in the Bay. Santa Clara, yes, sir. Yes. All right, welcome. Good to have you back. Dylan is also here. Hey, hey. In Arkansas. That's right. We got Gabe calling in from London. Hello. And Justin Dolman returning. And you're in New York? Uh, yeah, that is correct. Welcome, everybody. Well, we got some big news here. This is going to be the final Vim podcast episode. So on behalf of everyone at the Vim, I want to say thank you so much to the people who have listened and shared all the episodes. Thank you to the people who have interacted with the show. And thank you to all the Vimmers who came on the show. Adam, Lila, Max, Kevin, Allie, Ishan, John, Sarah, Alex, Lisa, Charlie. I think that's everyone. I uh, ask uh, your forgiveness if I left anyone out. Of course, thank you so much to Gabe and to Justin Clarity. And special thanks to Dylan and Justin Dolman, who were there at the beginning and really got this whole thing off the ground. But uh, here's what listeners need to know. Uh, The podcast feed is still going to be live and available until at least June 2021. So you can still revisit episodes. They're all evergreen and eternal just as relevant now as ever. Uh, We're simply not going to be adding any new shows to that feed. And the Vim blog uh, will still be alive and active. The podcast was always kind of an extension of the blog, and so we're still going to be publishing there. So you'll still hear from us. So for this final episode, we're going to do a big Q&A period, something of an AMA, or Ask the Vim Anything. Our questions are going to focus on uh, politics and philosophy, but there's going to be some random stuff thrown in there. Hopefully you enjoy it. And panelists, I, uh, I ask you to limit your answers to less than lecture length. <laughs> All right, so let's get started with, a little, uh, with something a little autobiographical. I want to know what kind of philosophy you do and why you decided to do it. You have to call on us, Zach. <laughs> All right, Justin Dolman. <laughs> So, yeah, I guess my answer should be the shortest. Uh, I am the (laughs) wisest of the group uh, in that I stopped doing all philosophy. Great. And so why'd you stop doing it? Well, I I looked at the trajectory of of, uh, philosophy historically, uh, meditated on this for for quite a while, really thought it out. And if if you look back at the classic philosophers, they actually wanted to be scientists. So it's really contemporary philosophers who just kind of like failed to grasp what philosophy was uh, and that it was really science all along. <laughs> wow, that's great. Gabe? Yeah, I mean, I guess what I do is kind of trying to prove what Justin just said wrong um, <laughs> kind of, as, much as, as much as is possible. Um, I work on uh, unresolvable disagreement. I work on uh, arguing that there's a a lot of what we care about isn't going to be resolved either by scientific method or any other kind of means. And, you know, that's contentious. People disagree. Justin probably disagrees. Um, But also, like, a lot of people think that if it's not resolvable, it's also uninteresting. And I think that that's wrong, too. I think it's fascinating. Of course. Why else would I work on it? Yeah, and we can see some of those themes on your pieces uh, on the Vim blog. Exactly. How'd you come? Uh, how'd you come to that? What made? What made you sort of like? Uh, what sparked your interest in disagreement? Yeah, good question. Other Justin. <laughs> <laughs> A lot more agreeable, right? 
<laughs> yeah, I like you better. <laughs> the Justins, you're the top one. <laughs> um, how I came to it is after my PhD, I felt really frustrated with how scholarly it became. Now, there's nothing wrong with like sort of really good drilling down into the scholarship of uh, a thinker. Uh, I'm totally for that. For other people to do that, I'm all for it, but it's definitely not for me. And I wanted to kind of really figure out a theme that I really cared about enough to sustain research for a long time. And I just realized that the thing that's bugged me all of my life has been why... Uh, yeah, how do we disagree with each other? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How can I think that I'm right and yet not be an asshole about it, not be arrogant about it? And what does it mean when I think that I'm right? Uh, like, is that an absolute claim? Um, does that, is there some kind of relativity to that? And I realized that neither of those are true, but, uh, that's what, that's what pushes me forward. Yeah. Justin Clarity. I study ethics, social and political philosophy, and uh, the philosophy of love. And I'd say, you know, the philosophy of love is probably the umbrella uh, field that I actually look at ethics and social and political philosophy through. How did I come to want to study this stuff? Yeah. So um, actually, you know, I just was an undergrad and took a class, uh, uh, Romantic Love and Personal Identity, um, and realized that a career path was available uh, to me for, you know, making out my thoughts and arguments about about love. Um, as many of our listeners might know from previous casts, I'm non-monogamous, uh, polyamorous. Uh, I identify as polyamorous. And so, you know, prior to identifying in this way, I was practicing non-monogamy uh, unethically in monogamous relationships, cheating, lying, the whole nine. Um, but, you know, when I'd get what we what we say, you know, in the community is caught up, you know, between uh, my partners or things like this, um, I'd try to engage these people with thinking about a reworking of what love is or what it could be. Right. Because what I was beginning to find was that so much of what we think, so much of what we believe about love uh, we've been sort of uh, handed, we've had handed down to us uh, from these social scripts. And, you know, I've always been interested in challenging those social scripts. Um, and yeah, so I kind of, you know, found my way uh, in, in, in that way. Dylan? I always have trouble answering this question and my answers change from time to time, but I guess probably the best answer is that I'm into uh, metaphysics and fill language and logic. Those are probably the big three for me. But then I also gravitate towards like meta philosophy and meta metaphysics and uh, meta metaphysics. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds cool at least. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. What, what got me into that? I'm not sure. I think it was, uh, those were, were some of the big topics I was interested in in undergrad. I kind of, came into undergrad knowing that I probably wanted to study philosophy. Um, but at that time I was kind of more into like reading the existentialists and stuff like that. Um, but then after I took a few classes like metaphysics and phil language classes, I was like hooked. I, I thought the problems were really interesting and important at the time. So that's what got me into it. 
That's actually really interesting, Dylan. Like my own trajectory, I think, had like a little bit of a different curve, you know, like I started with heavy interest in metaphysics, right? I was driven by questions like, what is the nature of love? What what, what constitutes this, right? Um, But it was over the course of, you know, exploring those questions where I grew more interested in the ethical questions, right? Like what is appropriate love? What is inappropriate love? Um, What does love look like in the context of the social sphere, you know? Um, So I don't know, you know, we talk a lot about politics here on the VIM and I'm I'm pretty sure that my own personal politics had some role in pulling me um, down from the meta 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 levels, uh, uh, and you know down to sort of like the ethics and and, and the ground. Um, yeah, yeah, that's good. That and that sounds like a natural trajectory to me, at least because it's like you were you know pulled by like some of the what some people might think is like foundational questions. You got that figured out. Now it's time to right, right, right. work on the ethics. Yeah. All right. Another question for you all. What political issues do you think do not get enough attention? Uh, it's kind of like it's piggybacking off of my last point, right, about polyamory and non-monogamy. I don't think that the issues of marriage reform um, get enough attention, um, nor do I think that the sort of consequences of, of marriage as it currently exists gets explored uh, in the ways that it exists at the intersection of non-monogamy and blackness, right? So what is marriage's role in uh, extending or perpetuating oppressive regimes against black bodies? I don't think that we, we ask these questions enough. I mean, there was a big push, as we know, um, uh, in the early 2010s, in the middle 2010s of getting same-sex marriage passed. So there has been some talk about marriage reform. And recently in Massachusetts, uh, a city, Somerville, has extended the rights um, that are typically reserved for spouses in a marriage to multiple party unions. And so people are now begin- we're beginning, very beginning to begin exploring, well, what does parenting look like, you know, in, in these sort hmm. of like expanded models? Um, what protections and rights are afforded? to children under these models. And I think that these, these importance are, are, I mean, these questions are very important and they're very pressing, especially um, as we exist at a time where socially non-monogamous relationships, polyamory, um, I should say consensually non-monogamous relationships, polyamory and the like, uh, seem to be taking on a enlarged uh, public interest. You know, I've been seeing it in media a lot more. Um, I recently was on the Tamron Hall show, which is on ABC Network. Um, so if you guys have an opportunity, go check that out. Um, talking about non-monogamy, uh, and race. Um, and so, yeah, I'd like to see uh, the marriage reform conversation uh, be happening a little bit more. And I think that it also connects. Uh, sorry, this is the last thing I'll say. I know you said keep it short, but I think it connects too, right, to sort of thinking about these other issues that do get a lot of political airtime. And that is sort of mass incarceration, anti-black racism, uh, health care uh, and, and the like. So is, is one of the reasons that that's uh, that intersection of sort of non-traditional relationship models, if we can call it that. I don't know if that's what we want to call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, issues of race and blackness is one of the reasons that that's important to look at. The way that marriage has been so much used as a tool to push home this kind of this uh, racist explanation for economic divide being that being marriage or being single parents as, mm. as um, that's that goes back to like the Nixon era as that being an explanation for what's called cultures of poverty mm-hmm. as a way of mm-hmm. not looking at at racist oppression being being the cause of these things i do agree with a lot of what you just said there i don't know necessarily if i agree with that sort of like last dichotomy like this sort of instead of i see uh marriage mm. as a tool uh for the extension of uh anti-black racism and i mean historically right i mean black people come from ch- chattel slavery where they're looked at as property and don't uh have the political privileges of ownership 
of like owning any property or things like this. Um, so they were just um, inappropriate subjects for the institution of marriage. And then even after the Civil War, um, when marriage rights do get expanded to African-Americans, we still see sort of like interracial relationships being policed, right, sort of as this protection or preservation of whiteness all the way up until um, Loving v. Virginia, which is, I think, uh, I want to say 67? 65, maybe, maybe 65. And so, yeah, I mean, and of course, you know, as you're mentioning, I think that it has been a part of advancing this disrespectable political agenda uh, that uh, uh, it seems like uh, has been in the interest of white supremacists for black people to assimilate into in the Americas from time. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't see it like as marriage instead of sort of like, you know, anti-black racism being the count of it. I see marriage as being a part of that anti-black racism as well, um, which is why I'm saying like we don't need to we don't need to adjust our political discourse to to solely focus on on marriage but i think that we need to begin to situate marriage alongside uh these other independent freestanding systems of oppression so that we can begin to kind of see how the the policing or the surveilling of intimate lives of black folks actually does in fact play a hand in their in in, in some cases their inability to upwardly mobilize right okay interesting so i have an answer to this one go for it gone it's non-human animal suffering Mm. 50 billion animals killed each year in farms people kind of are aware of this but it it should be much more front and center in our politics why 50 billion is a massive massive number and not only are they killed but they're essentially tortured their entire lives until that happens i mean the amount of pain suffering destruction that's happening to the whole planet and to sentient creatures with minds and lives yeah it's remarkably unconscionable yeah i mean it's a massive injustice that deserves more of our uh, thought and action would you be in favor of sort of like pushing um uh, political discourse in a way that actually decentralizes the human so not just thinking about non-human animals but also thinking about plants maybe technology I could just send people to an article on the Vim blog called Creative Responsibility, a call for papers, where I do kind of set out some of these issues where I do think we could extend our concern beyond simply human beings and their relations to each other. What would you say to, um, I kind of feel feel guilty admitting this out loud, even in the few like non-recorded situations where I have, but I, I'm probably not alone in this, so I will say it. Like I, I have trouble... Caring. I know I should. Um, like, when you say that, like, that, that makes sense to me. I've never had pets, though. Um, I, I don't really, like, have emotional connections to animals. Maybe that's why. But, like, like I, don't, I don't have a sort of philosophical reason why I think that human suffering is more important than animal suffering. But um, my empathy is, isn't there. And what, what do you really? think that I should... Uh, do about that (laughs) so have you seen videos taken in factory farms no or have you ever watched a video of someone like mistreating another animal like kicking a cat or beating a dog yeah i don't like seeing that no that's true i asked that question because i do think the empathy is probably there for you right there's just something awful about you just see that and you're like oh no you just like immediately feel there's something wrong with this kind of behavior right yeah and i just say this is happening on scales that our minds kind of struggle to appreciate. Yeah, what was that number 50 again? Billion, 50 billion 
So like seven times the world's population of human beings killed each year Mm. for no real reason, for no necessary reason. I like that comparison back, Zach, uh, that comparison there between sort of like the humans and the, an- and the non-human animals, um, because it makes me think about whether or not like there's the, there are issues of priority, right? Like, you know, sure, we can say we'd like to have more talk about this uh, political issue, right? Like non-human animal rights. But where do you think that that might fall or should or, or ought to fall as it pertains to um, political agendas that sometimes look hierarchical, right? And so in the civil rights movement, uh, Lyndon Johnson was a proponent of this sort of like incrementalist approach, right, to to the granting of rights to African-Americans. Um, and this was something that was not very well received amongst the African-American community. What are your thoughts about maybe like some kind of incrementalist approach toward uh, like the incorporation of non-human animal rights into our more mainstream political agendas? Yeah. So another question on my list for you all is going to be an unpopular political opinion. And this is the one that I had in my notes. Anti-speciesism. I will just use the word veganism to mean that, uh, should be an integral part of our movement for social justice, our intersectional movement for social justice. And I, I've mentioned this name, I think, a couple times on the podcast, but um, there's a book by two vegans of color called Afroism by Af and Silco, where they argue that the, that the logic of white supremacy is at play when we look at non-human animals as less than ourselves. And so the kind of social movements that are about lifting certain types of human beings into the category of fully human, because sometimes we talk about dehumanizing language or behavior, and like yeah, racism yeah. dehumanizes people of color, and that the movement is to raise them up into the human category, fully into the human category, that still comes at the expense of non-humans. And that white supremacy constructs this big hierarchy of moral value where there's like white men at the top and and it descends lower until you get non-human animals at the bottom. And so a movement uh, that's simply about raising people higher up into the hierarchy to join whiteness still is buying into the underlying logic of white supremacy. I wrote an article called Is Veganism Racist? where I explore some of these ideas. I do think they should be taken seriously, but I I do feel like whenever a vegan shows up in a social justice conversation and says this should be a part of the conversation, too, uh, they often get dismissed or insulted or something like that. And I think history is going to look very poorly on that. Statues of some of our current heroes, I think, will fall um, in in the future when we think about how we treat non-human animals and how we're okay with it. I like the image of like a bunch of uh, like turkeys or something like taking down some Confederate monument. (laughs) This is a perfect example. The turkey pardoning custom that we have in the United States every Easter. What does it mean to pardon a turkey? What crime did these turkeys supposedly commit to need to be pardoned for? The whole reason it's funny is because we know millions upon millions of their brethren are going to get tortured and killed. Mm. Except for these two, these three, right? When we're going to let them have a decent decent life. I mean, it's it's actually like a ridiculous and kind of a completely unjustified practice. <laughs> I I want to get you to back up, though, and maybe if you can explain that um, link, though, between the logic of white supremacy and the logic of speciesism. Um, because as I said before, like, I don't, I don't have a reason why I think humans d- deserve special ethical treatment, but I think like a lot of people do. W- what's the link there? I might, I might want to back up even a little bit from this answer. I don't want this necessarily get into like a veganism episode. Maybe what I'll just say is like, people should read Afroism. There's a book called Veganism in an Oppressive World that's about this too. 
vegans of color have like written about it. Yeah, so maybe I'll just put the veganism, is veganism racist article in the show description, and I'll ask if people kind of just wait or, uh, or take a look at that. Because I want to hear what you all think, what your unpopular opinions are, so I can interrogate you all. Sorry, Gabe. Here's, here's mine. Okay, okay, here we go. So, is this an unpopular opinion, or is this an issue that needs more attention? Oh, yeah. It might qualify as both. Okay. So, like, social media and uh, the role that it plays in our lives. We've talked about this on a number of different episodes in the past on, on the Vim, but I think it's just something we have to think a lot more about. Mm, kind of like yeah. what, what social media is doing to our mental health, what it's doing to political discourse, um, what it's doing to the streams of information that we're able to get from, you know, news sources and things like that. It's been a big topic in recent years, but I think it's something that, you know, we're going to have to think more about. Hmm. Can you say more about like what, what we should think about it? Yeah. I just think it's like, it's one of those things that I think like the norm, especially over the last decade or so since the advent of Facebook, at least is like everybody's on Facebook or everybody's on every social media platform. You're kind of like the odd one out. If you don't, if you're not on these and you're like missing out, there's always the fear of missing out. It's real. I've been without Facebook for I don't even know how long now, but maybe a couple of years, but I still feel like I'm missing out on like what my friends are up to sometimes, that kind of thing. But when you really think about it, it's like in a lot of cases you're like better off with, without these things. I mean, you would be. It's just sort of one of those like weird game theoretic sort of situations where it's like you don't want to be the only one who's not participating. Yeah, I guess that's that's what I'm thinking. Kind of want to press you here a little bit, Dill, uh, and yeah, thinking yeah, yeah. about um, you know when you say one would be better off without it. Uh, to me, there seems to be bound up within that claim maybe some suppressed views about the good life. Um, could yeah. you say maybe a little bit more what you might mean? Because when I mm-hmm. think about social media, right, I, I, well, when in that comment, I think about how many people engage social media as a means of entertainment, um, although it might have the sort of unintended consequences, as you've mentioned. Um, yeah. But for the people who you know, uh, go to it for entertainment uh, or uh, to maybe quell some of the intensity of of, of mental health con- uh, mental health mm-hmm. issues that they might be having. Um, yeah, like so. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking about does it, does entertainment fit into um, your 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 conception of the good life? Um, is it a necessary condition? Unnecessary? Right. Yeah. Tell us what the good life is, Dylan. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to. That's One without social I'm media. I'm asking my, uh, my students right now in my ethics class. We're talking about different conceptions of the good life. But I don't, I don't know if I have a good, a good answer to that. It's a good question. You're right to, to push me on that. And I think my answer is that, like, I'm pluralistic about this. Like, I, don't, I wouldn't deny that social media could play a great role in, in someone's life. Um, you know, it does. I I will admit that it gives people the opportunity to connect with people they otherwise wouldn't be able to connect with, um, to have forms of, you know, entertainment that, you know, it's, it's kind of like an outlet for unwinding and, um, you know, like a lot of people, um, 
you know, it's a it's a nice form of communication and and keeping up with friends, that sort of thing. All of these things are are definitely things that could be part of a good life. I guess my my thought is that the fact that it's a norm, uh, like the norm is that that everybody ought to be on it, or that it it's seen as being like part of a good life when it doesn't have to be. You know, there's there's pressure to be on the platform, and that's no. Um, that's no accident either because the the social media platforms the the companies design the applications in a way that like tries to get people um to be looking at their screens for longer periods of time that that sort of thing so i guess i'm just like i'm pushing back against this idea that it has to be part of of a good life but i i wouldn't deny that it has some beneficial roles and that it's good for a lot of things. Okay. Okay. Gabe. So this is a new one. I haven't risked my popularity by saying this to anybody else yet, but um, I think it's kind of a. I think it's. I thought about it a lot. So tell me what you think of this. But I think that the quote unquote post truth era, fake news, deep fakes that are coming, all of this is uh, not as big of a deal as we think it is. Hmm. When I say that out loud, that doesn't that. It, <laughs> it doesn't sound that much fire to say that something's not as big of a deal as we think it is. <laughs> but uh you Did know you there say was deep fakes. Deep fakes. Yeah, okay. Um so like That sounds uh, like a like a Randy Moss route. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's an American football reference. Uh, uh okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's gonna be lost on me for various reasons. Um but uh deep fakes is um definitely coming um which is uh ai generated faked videos recordings photos you will have say uh videos uh, arising soon that have donald trump in them saying some crazy things which of course he would never do you know it'll it'll just look like he did say those things um crazy things which of course yeah. is preposterous but you know and so you think this is all you know we're, we're getting our panties in a bunch here well i i kind of hesitate to call this an unpopular political opinion because it's kind of an unpopular philosophical opinion but then i think like the political the political anxiety around this is a philosophical anxiety in part. I do think it has potential to be politically destabilizing, and I think it already is. And what I kind of mean by by that is the sort of the lack of a social consensus about what the facts are in in a given case. Um, that that kind of characterizes our our era, and I think that's taken to be not just sort of politically troubling, but even more sort of epistemologically troubling, um, and therefore even more politically troubling because actually we do we do have more trouble sort of determining what what the truth is now than we did in sort of the broadcast era and i and i don't think that that's true i don't think that's true because i don't think we that factual truth is as important as it's often taken to be in our understanding of the world wow I like the uh, focusing on sort of like deep fakes in the political context. Um, so like you used an example of like a Donald Trump video. Um, and I think that that's very interesting. Um, and I can definitely see straightforwardly how that might complicate um, our politics. Um, but I also, you know, I guess a, a, a philosophically interesting um, idea about these deep fakes, because I'm really sort of like interested uh, in, in, in this, mm. this deep fake stuff, yeah, it's um, is, uh, you know, about aesthetics. 
ought we come to understand these sort of deep fakes um, as kinds of art? Um, and in, in so doing, um, you know, how ought we, you know, position them or sit, sorry, situate them into our political discourses, right? Because we have works of fiction, um, whether it be a novel or, you know, a sci-fi fantasy movie, um, you know, I don't know, just uh, sort of impressionalist paintings, you know what I'm saying? That we you know, know to not actually yeah. be the representation. Of, I mean, when Norman Rockwell is painting Walt Disney, right? It's not real Walt Disney, like on the camera. But yeah, I mean, I wonder. Do you think there might be space f- uh, aesthetically uh, for the? That's a really interesting question. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think like I think a lot of our aesthetics right now actually is from for the past decade and a half since South Park, Jackass, all of this is kind of a lot of our aesthetics is at a place where pranks and aesthetics meet right um, yeah yeah and and i think i kind of see it along those lines like i can i can imagine it's kind of is it is it a prank or mm. is it a work of art that's kind of a, a line that gets blurred i think and is going to be even more blurred as the as time goes on for sure me and zach are going to co-author a paper and present it at the philosophy of humor society nice yeah, yeah, we've been exciting. planning on that for what eight years. Yeah, man. Now we got a topic, you know. <laughs> Deep is that really yeah. such a thing? Yeah. Actually, yeah. Did you just, did you just oh, say nice. you're gonna steal my topic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, just don't worry about that game. Yeah. Reparations. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> okay, so here's another question for you all: If you had the opportunity to meet Donald Trump for 15 minutes, would you do it? And if so, what would you tell him? <laughs> I mean, sure. Yeah. Why not? It would be a good story. So what would you say to him then? There's no point in saying anything to him. <laughs> you just shake his How's hand and move burger? along? your burger? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> There's no point in trying to say anything to him, but I mean, wouldn't pass up the chance to meet him. Okay. Yeah, I think I've got a similar answer. I mean, I, I, I would meet him, but I'm not quite sure what I would, what I would say. Zach, you and I were talking about this the other day. There was that uh, interview, a recent interview of him that'll date this episode a little bit. But the the Axios interview, and I I thought that was an interesting interview. I I was impressed with the journalist who was pressing Trump on those uh, on a lot of his points. I don't know if that's really relevant to answering the question, but I I was like, oh, it'd be interesting to have that kind of conversation with Hmm. with Donald Trump. You're like holding him accountable for the the things he's saying and <laughs> that kind of. Well, thing. I think this is why I kind of like gave you an unsatisfactory answer is because I kind of disagree with you, Dylan. Like I don't, I don't okay. think that's what I I would get. I don't. I didn't really see the point of that. I mean, it was yeah, it yeah. was kind of interesting, but it's not going to yeah. sway any of his base. Everybody else already knows that he's full of shit. But like, I'm not going to pretend that I'm so completely immune to the sway of celebrity that I wouldn't just like do it just for me. Because I don't think there's any. You're not going to scratch the surface. You're not going to get anything out of him that he hasn't shown since you know day one. Yeah, and I think I think uh, I think sort of like that perspective is is probably why I'm going to pass right because you know (laughs) a lot of things for me relationally they 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 boil down in a lot of senses to an appraisal of value, Um, and when I can appraise a value of a relationship or even like a or sort of postulate about the potential value of a a particular kind of relationship um, where that. I go, I guess, calculus or whatever renders, you know, a, a valueless relationship or a valueless exchange. I t- 
try to do my best to avoid it. Um, and on top of that, you know, for such a long time, Trump was an anti-masker. Um, and so, you know, especially during times of COVID, post-COVID, I'm not really sure I want uh, whatever the fuck is floating around the White House, you know. <laughs> okay. All right. But you wouldn't even like, not even just for the story. <laughs> I think the story would be better told with having the opportunity and turning it down. Oh, it's like getting yeah. into Oxford or something, right? And be like, oh, That's yeah, true. bro, I went to the University of Arkansas instead. Or like being offered a knighthood or like Sartre turning down the Nobel. That's way better than getting a Nobel. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? It's way more legendary. Yeah. Okay, you know? okay. All right, I changed my answer. I'm, I'm going with okay. Um, okay, so I'm slightly disappointed that everyone's given wrong answers to this. The obvious right answer is to tell Trump that if he really wants to uh, own the libs, you know, he should just, like, take over their platform. Like, oh, Trump, you want to, like, own the libs, you should really, like, open our borders up. I I, I just feel like he's very prone to uh, reverse psychology. Like, that would just be so easy Mm, with Trump. That is a very good answer. Mm. Interesting. All right, so for me, when I envisioned this, I didn't think it would be televised or anything. It would just be me and him in a room, just a private 15-minute conversation. And I, I would do it. I, I would probably talk to him and I would just try to ask him some philosophical questions and see how that went. I'd ask him like how he determines what is right and wrong, like which values guide his life and whether those values are the right ones, whether he understands himself and just try to prod him a little bit, you know, Socratically, just to see if there's anything going on under the surface. Or if, he or would say, he would say that, well, actually, Zach, I, I take a scalar utilitarian approach to <laughs> to my decision making process yeah and, uh, that's it that could be that, it yeah oh man okay but yeah dolman i like your idea all right another question democracy overrated or underrated that <laughs> was oh, spicy yeah i'm gonna, I'm gonna say underrated i think it would be worth a try Talk about an unpopular opinion. Oh, one day, yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, I'm going to say overrated um, just because it's very highly rated. So it's, uh, this is one of those things where I think underrated is actually just impossible. But I do appreciate uh, Gabe's cheeky answer. Uh, Zach, what, what kind of democracy or, or do we have in mind? Hmm. It's unspecified in the question. I don't know. So I, I, I think I think that some forms of democracy are more overrated than others, right? So you know we have representative democracies or sort of like egalitarian democracies, and I think that for me this question, like I, I don't have a definitive response to over to the to the binary choices, um, but I do think that it is worth noting that there's a variety of democracies, um, and that it'd be worth exploring the the sort of like discrete values that each democratic set of ideals has um and then thinking about that in relation to the subjects uh, that we plan that or the the subjects that are going to be governed by that democracy so on and so forth um but if we're just talking about like straight up american representative sort of like electoral college democracy far away i'm I'm with dolman i think that it's overrated okay i think we don't think enough about how imperfect uh, the democracies that we have are. And, um, like one way of thinking about that is, is that like of all of the conversations that we have about, about disenfranchisement, um, whether in the U S or in, in other countries, 
those are all still so limited by the fact that we're still just talking about the people who are who are citizens of that country. Um, and as there's a uh, there's a philosopher in the UK whose name I can't remember. Um, uh, but she uh, she makes a point about that, like people who are outside of the the country are still subject to the laws of that country, and therefore they're they are being disenfranchised because they don't get any say in the laws that are still governing them by forbidding them from entering it. So just thinking about it on those levels kind of makes us really have to rethink just how radical an ideal of democracy, an ideal that is democracy. Yeah. That's especially true in America, in American imperialism. Right. I was thinking about the imperialists, too. Yes, yeah. especially. Yeah. So I, I would say that democracy as a concept is becoming underrated in America, because I think the GOP is realizing that democracy itself is really their enemy now. And a massive, yeah. I also think a massive amount of political problems could be solved directly or indirectly by making America more democratic. That's my answer. Okay, question. What is the most overrated academic field or philosophy subfield? Uh, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on my notes, I have take the fifth for this question. Come on, somebody. Economics, obviously. <laughs> economics. I mean, yeah, not, that's good. not necessarily. I mean, economics could be good, but as it is... It is, uh, especially in the U.S., which is completely dominated by Chicago School of Economics, it's complete bullshit. That's a good answer. All right, you ready for, uh, I'm going to give you a twist I can't be the only one who's going to answer that question. I'm I'm not the only one going on the record. (laughs) (laughs) No, here's an answer. Ready? You're not going to guess it. The most overrated academic field is contemporary philosophy. Uh, oh <laughs> shit that's a lot dude that's a lot Damn. yeah i do i do contemporary it, philosophy um <laughs> it could be so much better uh it can't be overrated though because it's not really that highly rated i don't know i don't know yeah i mean i did run a, a cross that but I, i'm just trying to be edgy here okay i, I have one business is the most econ- <laughs> is the most overrated but that's not really a proper academic discipline that's i thought that first okay yeah 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 <laughs> and then economics is as close as you can yeah get it's to. close because it yeah yeah so I, I would probably go with business the most overrated subfield of uh, philosophy all right, people. People don't want to answer this question. Probably like Spinoza study. No, I'm just, I'm just playing. <laughs> Shots fired. Uh, no, I mean, fine. All most overrated uh, field is medieval French literature. <laughs> hmm. All right, that was the yeah. best non-answer of. <laughs> No, I, was, right. I was just thinking that was a serious answer. I've got friends that are going to be like listeners to the show that are never going to listen again. It's a good thing it's the last episode after you insult <laughs> medieval French literature like that. Yeah, so wait, justify your answer then, Justin. Why'd you say that? There's no reason to study that academically. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just right, uh, fine. Yeah, but for enjoyment. I mean, there's nothing I like more than a, a nice brandy and, and you know some uh, chansons. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some uh, some heraldry from the, the 15th century. But uh, but yeah, don't try to do that in the ivory tower. Get that out. That's what I'm saying. Okay, fine. All right, question. 
If you could snap your fingers and pass any constitutional amendment, what would it be? Mine's easy. Uh, and it's actually something that Zach already said. I would, well, actually, no, I would do two. So uh, I, uh, I'll make up for non-answers in the past with a double answer on this one. One, abolish the Electoral College. Uh, two, you know, Zach, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go make, well, yeah, because we get to snap our finger, right? So we don't have to worry about any repercussions, like political repercussions. I would, uh, yeah, ban the killing of animals for human consumption. Nice. Yeah, we're not dealing with the consequences. For me, uh, I'm abolishing prisons. That's good. Mine is similar to to the electoral college because mine mine would just all be about voting. It, it would include automatic voter registration. It would make election day a holiday or a series of holidays. Um, you could never lose your right to vote. Um, universal enfranchisement. It would have anti-gerrymandering provisions, and it would make D.C. a state, uh, maybe even Puerto Rico a state, and it would make the Dakotas into a single state, and Montana and Wyoming into one state. So we would still have 50. Montoming? Exactly. (laughs) Wyana! (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Actually, I think maybe just give them, if you are below certain... Uh, population, you just get one senator. I mean, because, you know... It's not bad. Yeah, I mean, these these states have been states for a while. They, I don't want to offend those people. But <laughs> you're right, 50 is a beautiful number, and it would be a, a pity to lose that. So we do have to, like, think and about I do that think trade-off. If, if you did some of the stuff in my amendment, the Electoral College could maybe stick around. Um, it wouldn't be so much of a problem. Yeah, I would still get rid of it. I, I do dislike its uh, effects, um, but it's also just... Uh, bizarre anachronism like there's just no like you would never create if we were to create a new constitution now no one would i don't know i think it's just i'm so angry at the bad faith arguments brought forward to justify its continued existence yeah that it's really just it it bothers me hearing about it yeah any other amendments i don't know i guess could we get rid of the second amendment does that count as that's not bad yeah yeah or just or repeal the change second amendment. it. Yeah, repeal or drastically change that. I'm actually surprised, Zach, that your 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 snapping of the fingers actually didn't have much to do with sort of like gun law. Well, see, I I do think my amendment would lead to like just massive political changes down the road. There would be no Republican control for at least a generation until they figured out a way to game the new system. Well, Zach, a more positive spin on it would it is that it would cause them to just redo, like, retool their platform. Right. So, I mean, yeah, so it would abolish the Republican Party as as it currently is. They would have to adapt, right? No, yeah, maybe? but giving more political power to, to people through my amendment, that would have implications for, you know, for gun control and Supreme Court and what have you. Uh, Gabe, did you have one? Uh, I think I'm a bit too Canadian for this question, but <laughs> I uh, I second all of your motions all right question for you all we had kicked around the idea of doing a whole episode about this but it never came together who is your most hated public figure i'm gonna probably go with jeff bezos Hmm. okay i don't know if i need to offer a rationale there but yeah that's probably my my short answer yeah that's a good one so i actually i've thought about this a little bit since i think i maybe proposed I don't know if I proposed this episode or I was just very excited about it, but I can finally reveal who who just like impelled me to uh, support this. 
And, but it's it's really a pet cause. Anyway, um, without further ado, the most odious public intellectual mm-hmm. is far and away Dinesh D'Souza. He was going to be my number one. Mm, that's good, yeah. And if, if you don't know who it is, who he is, uh, just anything he does is terrible. So you should watch yeah. any video. He's He somehow is and like... He was, and he was pardoned by Donald Trump. Yeah, so he, he's a criminal, he, which and he's like very dishonest in debates. Like watching debates with him, you just see the dishonesty happen live, and it's there's a certain horror that he induces in me. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, if, if, I was introduced to him. I watched uh, back in my high school days. I watched a debate between him and uh, Christopher Hitchens, and I was just so infurious. Infurious. Wow. I was so furious. Infuriated. I was both. I was infurious. That's a good. That's a good Dr. Seuss word. I was, <laughs> I was infurious. Is that like inflammable? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It could exactly. mean both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my answer is similar. I think to that. Mine is probably Charlie Kirk. People familiar with this character? He's like no. the head public guy of Turning Points USA. Just a horrible like right wing grift and. I think when I watch him, I'm, it feels like he is aware of how destructive uh, what he's doing is, but he's kind of doing it anyway because it, he makes money off it, and it's just remarkable. He had an exchange with a rabbi, like a liberal rabbi. Man, it was just incredibly painful. Where Charlie Kirk thought he was like owning this rabbi and odious, uh, infuriating. Yeah, I don't really like how the syllables work in his name. Um... You know, like it's 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 just weird. You know, as I'm looking around on our Zoom screen, I see everybody has these really nice symmetrical names, but like Charlie Kirk, it's like it just ends too quick. And like a name like Charlie, it needs a little bit more than like Kirk. You know, I don't know. It's a little, it's a little wow, okay, a little wonky. You know, hearing you it's say a lopsided name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can anyone no. top that for the most superficial reason to dislike somebody? <laughs> <laughs> I had a boss who used to make fun of me for having three first names. And you can make fun of him for that reason, too. <laughs> that, that, that is pretty The funny, funny. thing was is that he had two last names. Like, his, his, his first name was also a last name. So, so here's a question. Uh, Justin Clarity requested it. Uh, will LeBron win another title? Who's LeBron? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could see it. So I wanted to include this question just so that I could talk about my love for LeBron. And whenever I talk to Justin Clarity about this, he seems to be the only person in the world who loves LeBron more than me. <laughs> it's amazing like how much faith he has in, in LeBron. Because yeah. if the question is, will LeBron win another title? My heart says yes. My brain, to be honest, tells me no. But really, I just want to say Le- LeBron should be given everything. And anyone who stands in his way should be hated and reviled. And he's my hero, and I have no patience for anyone who criticizes him. So I just want our listeners to know that um, the original version of this question was, when will LeBron win his next title, right? So (laughs) for me, it was a lot less, it was a lot, uh, it was a lot more closed and less open-ended. But but yeah, you know, you know where I stand on that. Do we know? <laughs> tell, tell the listener, where do you stand on this? Well, I think that uh, LeBron is definitely going to win another title. Um, I see it happening sooner rather than later, um, especially because uh, in his current campaign, he's being aided by the uh, highlights uh, and the playmaking skills of Alex Caruso. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, oh. that, that's my guy. How old is he now? 
I think he's 37 or no, 35. 35 sounds right to me. Yeah, I think he's 35. How does that, uh, like, basketball is friendlier to folks in their 30s than other sports, than some other sports, right? I don't uh, know. Am I right in thinking that? Let me tell you, early 30s, it's, it's, it's tough once you get around 34. The other side of 34 is kind of, it's a dark place, you know? That's where, tell ca- me about that's it. where careers <laughs> go to die. I would say there's universal agreement that LeBron is doing something extraordinary by still being arguably the best player in the league. That should not be the case. Yeah. Although I will say, in relation to age, I was excited about the bubble, you know, um, in uh, a lot of my social media. Sorry, Dylan, I do have a couple of accounts. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, uh, in my social media, there were all of these pictures circulating of LeBron where he had this very beautiful graying beard. Zach, I don't know if you saw the graying beard. Did you see oh, that? Oh, yeah, man. Of but then day one of the bubble, that shit was black. Yeah, and I'm yeah. just like, oh, I'm a little you disappointed. <laughs> I'm disappointed yeah. in the dying of the beard, LeBron. You know, so, uh, you know, hopefully you come back next, next season or the season. The 2021 season, full gray. I, I like the gray yeah. look. LeBron's hair and hairline could be a podcast unto itself. There's yeah, his whole hair politics. I mean, now that I think about it, you know. <laughs> That's an interesting point. Yeah. yeah. The politics of, Le- <laughs> of LeBron's hairline. Headband, no hair, headband. Yeah, because yeah. I was just like, dude, the, the, you really dyed your beard? And, and I mean, mm. I don't know the motivation. I mean, pictures had already gone public. Gray the, beards can look so good, too. Yeah, and they had already gone public. I didn't see it, but... You know, it's like... Uh, but yeah, yeah, it just looks really... And it's like a jet black. You know what I mean? It's just like dyed a yeah. color that we just know that it's not. And anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, question for you all. What has been the best Vim podcast episode? If a listener is going to go back and only listen to one, what should it be? I like the one that we did on White Ignorance. I thought that was pretty good. Um, maybe yeah. just because it's fresh in my memory. The first one that I... It's not the first one that I listened to of the Vim, because obviously I was a listener before I was a member. The first one that I really was like, really, really liked was it was it was something to do with non-monogamy. I think some of our uh, Trump Guide episodes would definitely have to include those up there. The originals? Yeah. Yeah, those were our first I think ever. our... Our later ones are good, too, but yeah, I think our originals, those are definitely up there. And then thinking about some more like recent ones. So in your mind, it was all just downhill from the first uh, few episodes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we started off hot and then... <laughs> and lost the fire. Yeah. Cooled off, yeah. <laughs> no, I, was, I like the one we did about your article on uh, the non-identity problem, Zach. Oh, yeah. I like that one. That one's one. a recent that, one, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. I think I'm going to go with um, the Socratic Method episode. Um, I think that... That's one of those Trump Guide ones, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the Socratic Method episode, it just because it kind of lays the foundation for just, you know, how we aspired to treat any issue that we uh, encountered here um, at the VIM. Yeah, I mean, I imagine a good deal of our audience being philosophically inclined. And then there was one more that I had. Um, it was what does philosophy owe society? Um, yeah. Again, and this is kind of related to, uh, you know, reading the room, right? And imagining many of our listeners to be philosophers. Um, and I do think that the, the pairing of, you know, the Socratic Method episode, as well as what does philosophy owe society? Um, I think that there's a lot of gold there that might ignite the kind of change we'd 
we've we've long discussed you know seeing um amongst academic philosophers in particular right um sort of engaging the socratic method with with integrity um and also sort of minding their uh social obligations um so yeah those are the ones i'm gonna go with new york justin i want to hear your answer oh my answer is that they're all of a uniform quality so i can't give an answer i won't say whether that quality is <laughs> high or low but if they're uniform damn listener there have been so many discussions behind the scenes between me and justin trying to pull some evaluative language out of him and it's just so hard <laughs> <laughs> Uh, For me, the answer, the episode that Dylan and I did about post-truth is close to my heart, and Uh, I thought was very good. So that's my answer. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that one again. So question, should the listener vote? Unqualifiedly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Why not? I mean, uh, especially with a lot of mail-in voting happening, it's relatively cost-free. In fact, I'm I'm for voting, but this is the thing: only if you tell people that you voted. Don't vote <laughs> secretly, because because it's you know obviously your vote by itself actually makes no difference. But the reason I think people should vote is to like I don't know support the norm of of civic engagement. So I am actually serious though that if you you vote, you should tell people you voted. So nobody's nobody's gonna make the uh, contrarian case <laughs> that you should uh, you should make the Dems work for uh, work for your support. Hey, we didn't say who you're voting for. Well, if you're a Republican, you shouldn't vote. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think we should say that. I think I think it's very much d- depends on who you're voting for whether you should vote. First off. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so I uh, my on my notes I had something similar to what Dolman said. Um, it could be encapsulated with uh, his phrase of "why not." I mean, this isn't a case of moral uncertainty. There might be an obligation to vote. I'm not fully sure. We could have that argument. I think it's very unlikely that it's morally impermissible to vote, and so you can hedge your bets and do it. It's probably safe. There is an argument against voting. Let's not pretend that there isn't. I think like. We should at least give that some voice. And the argument is that the reason that the Democratic establishment continues to ignore the left is that they have no reason not to, that they're never being held to the fire. Their feet are never being held to the fire by the left because they're, that's safe. Those votes are safe. And so as long as the support continues to be there, then there, there's no leverage being exercised. I think that's the argument. I mean, does that not land at all with any of y'all yeah so i am operating on a distinction between the morality of voting and that's separate from the question of who you're going to vote for Uh, but maybe that really can't be separated yeah i don't know i don't know about that i mean your your question was just should you vote so yeah i I wouldn't distinguish those because i think i think i think actually the the saying saying you should vote no matter for who is kind of i don't really get that I mean, if for voting to matter, it has to matter who you're voting for. Otherwise, what's the point of voting? I think we did an episode about this in the past, but I can't remember. Uh, it's not <laughs> specifically about this, but we did talk about this distinction. It may have been way back in the yeah, Trump guy I feel days. Like we did, yeah, that sounds right. Okay, so separate question. Before you move on, though, like yeah, I want to, I was kind of trying to goad somebody to take to take that because, uh, and I'm a little bit 
disappointed. But I think that that's an argument. I do think it's a powerful argument. But I also think, like, in terms of leverage, the left also doesn't have any. And I do think, I, I do agree with the rest of you that you should vote because we don't have any leverage. And we do kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, there's also the question of how voting connects to other forms of leverage that you might have. It's possible for someone to vote for a Democrat and then still criticize them or still try to exert some kind of power, even though they are in elected office and you help them get them there. I mean, voting is one way. It's maybe the most salient way, but there are other ways too. But I think the strategy of like getting somebody into their safety, whether it's even just for two or four years, but getting somebody into the position that they need to be in and then trying to exercise leverage over them seems strategically dubious, though. Maybe. But so this is Hmm. also connected to another issue, which is the lesser of two evils logic. Yeah. I had written a little bit about this around 2016, and I find it very disappointing, um, the kind of discourse on the left around the lesser of two evils argument. And I don't know. I I think I've said this on the podcast before, but maybe it's good just to say it again. The lesser of two evils logic as an argument form is valid. It is sound. You should vote for the lesser (laughs) of two evils all the time. Okay? It's really quite simple, especially when you consider how bad the alternative is. The Democratic Party is, unfortunately, the only game in town for fighting back against um, pretty much straightforward fascism and overt white supremacy so do you not think that that um that argument that i made about like the way that the the democrats depend on and and like count the left as dependable and not and as not needing to be sort of bought in oh does that does that land at all this is why we have primaries yeah i don't i don't know that doesn't land at all with me i mean i think Mm. that the democratic party has moved no i don't think i I mean, I do think it, but I also know that the Democratic Party has moved really far to the left in the last 20 years. You know, I mean, like the things they were doing under Clinton would just be like unconscionable now. That is true. I mean, and just, you know, in in the United States, we have two parties. So, you know, you're going to be in a coalition with a lot of people. And to say that the left has no power, I mean, I think at least in the discourse with a capital D, the left has a lot of power. But, I mean, that's my curated Twitter. So, so, yeah, I don't know. So here, here's another thing I don't get, <laughs> like maybe this is one of those unpopular opinions, is I think the stress and concern about a two-party system is overblown. I don't think a two-party system is necessarily bad. If you were able to morph one of the parties into your liking, and all of a sudden that one party, one of the two major parties did everything that you wanted, then you wouldn't want there to be more than two two parties. It, that would increase the chances of you losing power. And so when you're faced with a two-party system, instead of having to split it off, perhaps the most more rational approach would be to try to grab a hold of one of those parties and morph it in your own image. But that's too abstracted from the... Uh from the reality of it and i think like when people criticize the two-party system part of they're not they're not criticizing that that theory but what it ends up turning into which is something much more well as it is now kind of a uh conflict between something moderate and something extremely bad or um as it's been before sort of two more moderate i'm not merely making any sense though so <laughs> <laughs> Question, who will win in 2020? Yeah, I think it's a pretty safe bet to say that Biden will win if he 
I mean, uh, stays alive. And I don't say that as a joke. I mean, I, I'm worried sometimes. I don't know. I think for me, it's still an open question um, of who will actually win this the, the the upcoming election. We have to sort of think about voter suppression, right, and what ends up happening with you know how how ballots get cast and counted. We also have to still think about sort of like uh, global interference um, in the in the actual election that maybe only comes to light uh, only months after uh, that. I mean, said election. Additionally, I think that there is, in, in a lot of senses, some healthy skepticism uh, from the left about, you know, Biden being the cam- candidate. He touts these numbers amongst, you know, African-Americans where um, it seems like in a lot of senses he's um, sort of riding on the esteem of the Obama era or the, by his, his work in the Obama administration. Because, you know, prior to, to COVID, where, you know, debates were happening regularly and, you know, we were able to sort of see these and, and Bernie was still in the race and sort of in, in the left in general had like a a very broad field, uh, if you will. You know, it, it wasn't immediately clear that Biden's perspective landed with intellectual blacks. I don't know. I, I don't know how well um, he'll carry that vote. Um, I don't know who will vote. Um, so, you know, for me, it's, it's a very open question. And that does, in fact, trouble me. Um, so, you know, if, if, if there's a gym to be taken away from my response, it is to vote. I mean, aside from, you know, the, the the conversation we were just having um but yeah i i, I honestly don't know i i, I don't know I, i'd like to I, i'd like to say biden but um the 2016 election kind of presented to me a set of possibilities around uh, american elections that prior to that point just weren't very readily at the foremost of my mind whereas you know going into the 2020 election um and the incumbent being who he is it, it, it's it's really anybody's game yep i I don't feel confident one way or the other. I mean, just thinking, I'm not sure if this is uh, the right way to think about it, but I'm just thinking about back to 2016 and how confident at that point I was that he was not going to win. (laughs) And I think I'm not nearly as as, uh, confident now. Right, right. I took bets on that. (laughs) (laughs) Really? You bet on Clinton winning, Gabe? Yeah, I did. Interesting. So I, I never I th- paid them though, so I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting. I was not at all confident in Clinton, but I do think some liberals are like overcorrecting. I, I think for the first time ever, there's going to be a, a distinction between winning the election and then getting to be president. I, I do think Biden will win the election. Whether he'll be president next is now a separate issue, thanks to Trump and the GOP. Because I do think the results will be close. William Barr's eventual, inevitable October surprise, you know, standard GOP cheating with like voter suppression, Justin, as you mentioned, uh, I think plenty more like unprecedented Trump corruption. All that stuff is going to close the current gap in the polls. And then since the results, I think, are going to be close and we might not know them for a bit, a week or a, a month. There's going to be a lot of uncertainty about what's what should happen next. All I can say is God help us. Mm-hmm. Yikes. Uncertain times. Okay, on that <laughs> note of optimism, <laughs> just a couple more questions. Uh, two more questions. What is a philosophical question that you think does not get enough attention? What is philosophy? <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm with you on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that gets enough serious attention, right? Um, but I mean, clearly, 
there are arguments that are espoused. I mean, we purport to have this divide between sort of chosen methodologies of pursuing questions, um, yet the divide can't very well be clearly made out, right? I mean, then there's also camps of folks who actually just deny that there is this divide. And I don't know, I think I think the question of what is philosophy is is, is one worth asking and taking seriously. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm just going to throw in a plug for 80,000 hours and uh, effective altruism and say that the entire model uh, that they operate under is good for figuring that out. 80,000 hours, did you say? Yeah, 80,000 hours and effective altruism. 80,000 hours is, I don't know exactly what type of organization it is, but they have a podcast, they have a lot of articles. I mean, it's a website, but it's some type of organization as well. I I think that before them, um, no one really thought about neglectedness like as a very serious issue or as a very serious consideration. And I think that they've done both like the public policy world and the academic world a great service by often foregrounding neglectedness as a reason for going into something. And and that's, I guess, exactly what Zach's question is. But they think about it in a more rigorous way that I, I really enjoy, no, that I really appreciate. I don't really understand your answer, Justin. So neglectedness in what in what sense or like what i I don't know what eighty thousand hours is so well okay so it wasn't listeners that yeah i mean you're right gabe to point out that my answer wasn't a direct answer of zach's question but it was a it was a i don't know if it was or not (laughs) it was a plug it was it was uh, also offloading direct responsibility of answering that question onto someone else which is this organization called eighty thousand hours but maybe you could say what it is, though. Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, 80,000 Hours, from our listeners' perspective, would just be a website and a podcast where they talk about, I think they even have a slogan that's talking about like the most pressing issues. But oftentimes they'll find issues that you won't hear about, at least discussed in like a public policy way, um, anywhere else. Because one of their... Criteria is specifically neglectedness. Like that's a reason for something to be okay. worthy of discussion for them. It's like, oh, is no one else paying attention to this? Uh, and then so they'll they'll talk about it. But I mean, they also are um, interested in a lot of like my own pet subjects, like animal welfare and long termism. And the the eighty thousand hours that's supposed to be like the average num the average number of hours that the average person <laughs> spends during their career over their lifetime or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, oh, okay. That's actually, so it's all about like spending, spending that time wisely. Yeah. I, I imagine people, yeah, like, right. people like Gabe would just really hate this website, but uh, I think it's the best one. Wait, why? Why would Gabe hate it? Uh, I think Gabe has a more romantic. Gabe owns an effective altruist sweater. But I, I think Gabe has a much more... I do, that's true with this. <laughs> but he has You left toilet. it at my house. <laughs> what? what does that say on it? I want to know. It says effective altruism. <laughs> that's it? It's got a light bulb. It's got a light bulb on it. Is that why you, is that why you left it? Uh, no, it's not that. I mean, I... So, all right. So behind the... <laughs> a little bit more detail. The only time Gabe and I have met in person was when I was in London attending an effective altruism conference. <laughs> 
And they gave me as a, like a, oh, well, they gave all the people at the conference uh, some swag, some effective altruism swag. But I was traveling quite light. I just had a backpack. I just couldn't fit it. And so I'm like, hey, would you want this sweatshirt? So now he can walk around London advertising for effective altruism. And by extension, 80,000 hours. But I actually just uh, just wear it at home. And so actually that swag has been a really ineffective use of money, oh. um, as it turns out, <laughs> ironically. Sorry, Justin, uh, Justin Dolman. New York, Justin, <laughs> you, uh, you were, you were going to say something about, uh, why I, th- why you thought I'd, I'd hate this, uh, w- website. I'm curious to know, cause I do like to have good reasons to hate things. So if you can give me something, that'd be good. No, I wasn't, I was going to give you a, a bad reason. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that I, I think that you have a much more romantic engagement with, uh, philosophy and life, uh, than I do. That was that oh, interesting. Was, yeah. Okay. So that's it. Hmm. Oh, hmm. Very, it's an interesting claim. <laughs> I mean, you might be in good company. I'm around a lot of people who hate effective altruism, well, you know, which instinctually makes me like it. But then I'm, whenever I'm around a lot of effective altruists, I think something is wrong. Here. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just my contrarian tendency. I don't know if I hate effective altruism or not. I do have concerns about it, but that might be because I kind of associate it with one of its proponents, Peter Singer, who I also definitely don't hate. In fact, I admire him a great deal, but I also have serious concerns about it. And that comes to like what, what I think that philosophy should pay more attention to, which is the way that I'm going to imagine that you would ask that question, mm-hmm. Zach, um, which is uh, sort of concreteness and um, engagement with reality. And I've been thinking about this lately as I've been uh, been reading this great book called The Divide by Jason Hickel about the relationship between poor countries and rich countries and just how much capital flows out of poor countries into rich ones um, and how we've got this whole idea of development and aid um, and we, you know, we still use this term the developing world sometimes as though there is what's happening in the world is rich countries helping out poor ones and in fact by orders of magnitude, what's happening instead is is um, money being taken out of, of poor countries, and money and, and other goods being taken out of poor countries. Um, it's made me really think about this uh, this really wonderfully persuasive singer text. It's got a, he's, he makes the argument in a few texts. I think rich and poor is the one that I used to teach, um, where he talks about like an obligation of the wealthy to give to the poor. And it, it, it's great. I think this was uh, a really, it's a really compelling argument. Um, and yet, like, my very reactionary uh, conservative students would always have some objections to it. Uh, there would always be some students that I couldn't get on board with it. It frustrates me more and more looking back on that and thinking about, like, okay, yeah, it's a great argument for that the wealthy should uh, help out the poor, but it's based on these these flawed assumptions about what is actually going on in the world, which is not um, they're just existing some poor people and some wealthy people that have no relationship between them. What's actually going on is extractive and abusive. And what the wealthy should be doing is is ceasing to steal from the poor. Um, So just kind of like that kind of disengagement of philosophy with what is happening in the world bugs me more and more um and i think there's something really messed up about wonderfully like i mean his arguments are so good 
and so so simple and so persuasive, and yet they're based on bullshit, <laughs> and that just really bugs me. That's my rant. <laughs> All right, let's ask the last question. What philosophy texts were most influential for you, or that you would recommend to listeners? I'll do it. I have two. They happen to be the best texts in philosophy, so that's pretty cool. The first is uh, Famine, Affluence, and Morality by Peter Singer. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I know everyone agrees with me on that one. And uh, What do you like about it, Justin? Everything you hate, Gabe. (laughs) Um, I, I just... Well, defending utilitarianism is a fight for another day. But it's uh it's very um never mind. I don't I it just it's just a recommendation. These are hot takes. Like we don't, I don't want to slow the tempo of this this race car of a podcast down. <laughs> uh second book is uh more of a pamphlet is uh Hume's Inquiry. That that was the text that got me interested in I think really actually like thinking better. I think that uh, Hume was undoubtedly a genius, and but he was a genius who had a desire to communicate, and I think that that's very rare in philosophy. And just his like footnotes are just so great. Also, like he just was such a great observer of everything. Like he has footnotes about like animal behavior that are like what just like prescient and beyond what I would ever have expected anyone to notice. Just like notice in the 18th century. The one, the one bad thing about Hume is that he gave us Kant, and uh, that is something that's inexcusable. <laughs> but he couldn't have foreseen. Well, and also that that apparently was a well-known racist. So, <laughs> two bad things. Yeah. <sighs> well, yeah. Rip. Never mind. No. <laughs> but I, I but, yeah, I, I, I am a fan of Hume's work. I considered Hume too because he is like a, the quintessential like wrecking ball philosopher, right? He'll just like rip your whole world apart. Um, there's some value to that. Yeah, I think it's a great text to start with, too. bit too skeptical for my, my liking, but uh, yeah, it's good stuff. So beautifully written, too. It's so readable. So who else? I want to get everyone on the record here. Uh, so I've been reading this book that uh, has got me more excited than anything that I've read for a while by Bernard Waldenfels. Uh, it's called Phenomenology of the Alien. It's a really concise little book where he goes through his whole uh, life's work and just kind of summarizes each of his major works. And uh, yeah, it's just a really interesting take on um, the relationship between self and other, um, the relationship between the experiencer and the world that they experience. uh, Also offers kind of a um, a very bold and uh, I think really compelling way out of the the kind of dichotomy between universalism and relativism that uh is almost got me convinced so yeah any others on your list gabe just the one oh that's enough for now yeah. okay <laughs> dylan this is really tough but i'll go with um constructing the world by david chalmers say uh, a hidden gem how many people talk about it these days but think it's a really good book all right cool justin clarity so i am going to go with i have a couple 
I'm going to start with, I think, you know, Black Feminist Thought by uh, Patricia Hill Collins. Um, Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. Between the World and Me by Tana Hesse Coates. Fire Next Time, James Baldwin. Wretched of the Earth, France Fanon. So these, these last three are like, yeah, I can say a little bit more about these. I think the ones that I've mentioned uh, really are worth picking up. And really, once you pick them up, they kind of... Um, it will become immediately clear uh, why one ought to have picked it up. I'd say, you know, I guess more sort of like in my like specialization, things that I do, blah, 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 blah. I think one of the early influential books was uh, The Reasons of Love by Harry Frankfurt. Um, I think I'd also go with uh, On What Matters by uh, Derek Parfit. I just think that that book is a lot of pages. And so if you can pick it up and finish it, it's kind of like one of those like things you could say, you know, you've done in your life, you know. So, you know, there are some people who have like, you know, I've read the Bible like back and front. Well, it's like, well, yeah, have you read On What Matters? You know, and I think that the, t- the title itself is just so audacious, right? Like on what matters if it ain't in here you know (laughs) what are you doing but it's about like 1400 pages in two two volumes or something like that or maybe 1700 i don't know i don't remember page count um and then a theory of the moral sentiments by adam smith wow i would not have expected that that's why i saved it for last that's why i saved it for last you know interesting i think that you know for me uh i a lot of my analyses uh consider the emotion of sympathy and the emotion of empathy and how they can be politically useful. Um, and I think that uh, Smith's theory of the moral sen- uh, sentiments, I wouldn't necessarily say provides a base that you could build upon, but again, much like the Harry Frankfurt work, I think that it's good work to engage with while one is making out their own thoughts as to um, how sympathy and its related emotions might function, right? Empathy, compassion, tenderness, uh, and the like. Good. I knew it was going to fuck all you guys up when I came with the Adam Smith, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, the text that was most influential was certainly Spinoza's Ethics. So that closes the circle. Justin Clarity was throwing shade at Spinoza earlier. <laughs> He's the one philosopher who more or less figured everything out. And so if you just want to know what the truth of the world is, you can read Spinoza's Ethics. I only say that partially tongue-in-cheek. Tongue um, <laughs> he's, he's more or less on the right track about everything. Um, so there you go. Uh, recommendation for me, I would recommend Alan Watts read The Wisdom of Insecurity or The Meaning of Happiness or The Supreme Identity. Uh, just very easy and light, but very profound, and uh, also someone who is more or less on the right track, I think. So those are my recommendations. And that's it, guys. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you, Justin. And thank you, other Justin. Thanks. That's a wrap. See you all at the Vim blog.